song by Gordon Lightfoot, Rainy Day People. Thank you. Our next song, we actually played a few years ago when Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane died, Wooden Ships, but the song was co-written by David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and we lost the wonderful jo David Crosby this year. So this is Wooden Ships. <coughs>
south over my shoulder. Guess I'll set a course and go. Thank you. This next one, uh, we actually have two songs in the service in honor of, <laughs> not because he was particularly that special, but just because the two songs were so cool. Denny Lane played in a number of bands, and toward the end of his career, he played with Wings, with Paul McCartney. Um, sorry, I'm trying to find um, patches here. Um, and he played drums on this song, so Chris has a little bit of a drum feature here. Um, this is called Let Him In. So all you people out in the foyer, come on in. Knocking at the door, somebody's ringing the bell. Someone's knocking at the door, somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor, open the door. you to rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. 
Here come the ministers, let them in. today with sacred intention to declare that justice is our prayer. We affirm in covenant with the beloved community that is possible. Not here, not quite yet, but the seeds have been planted time and time again, and we remember all who went before us and made beloved community a dream that could be realized. May our time together continue to water the budding trees of our diverse interdependence. May our time together give air and nourishment to the parts of our collective spirits that need to grow and thrive in order to embrace equity as a way of being. Come, let us worship together. I invite you to join, I invite you to join in singing our opening song. The words are in your order of service. You'll jump in on the chorus and we're gonna sing the chorus twice. This is Sunrise Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof, and we're honoring Topo, the actor who origina originated the role of Tevye, um, Norman Jewison, who directed the film. He actually died this year, but we threw him in, and Sheldon Harnick, who was one of the co-writers of the musical. Season following another 
Thank you. Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Catherine Probasco. I'm happy to welcome all you seedlings and sunflowers to First Unitarian. Whether you're in the sanctuary or the fellowship hall, take a look around and send a little welcome blessing to the people who are near you and maybe the ones far away across the sanctuary too. Kids, thanks for being here. If you get bored, we have an art table back there. If you need room to jump and dance, there's a family room across the hall where the service is live streamed for your parents. And if you just need a soft rug to lie on and some colorful toys, we have the playground down here, the best seat in the house. It is for kids only. Oh. We have a special service for you today. This is our 35th annual eulogy service in which we'll be remembering notable people who died in 2023. This service is a celebration, lifting up a few people whose lives may have touched ours in some way, even though we probably never met them and may not have ever heard their names. Some of the people we'll remember today were well known, but there are many famous names missing from this service. For example, Sandra Day O'Connor, Rosalind Carter, Diane Feinstein, and Fernando Botero have been well memorialized in the media already. Instead, most of the stories we'll tell today are people whose lives had an outsized impact, but who may have barely made it onto the public radar. Pioneers, scientists, heroes, culture makers, all were human beings like us. Their legacies remind us of the power of a single life to touch others and the interconnectedness of all people. There is one thing different about this year's service. We don't have a slideshow to go with it. That's because we are short-staffed right now in the AV department. So instead, we've listed the names in your order of service. And without the slides, it's a little harder to convey the diversity of the eulogies. So if you have a smartphone or a computer on you and you want to see their faces, you're welcome to look them up during the service. Enjoy. Shane McGowan, otherwise known as Shane O'Hooligan, was a singer-songwriter known for his work with the band The Pogues and collaborations with Kirsty McCall and Sinead O'Connor. Uh, he struggled very publicly with alcoholism and substance abuse. The New York Times described him as, a quote, a titanically destructive personality and a master songsmith whose lyrics painted vivid portraits of the underbelly of Irish immigrant life. This song is called A Rainy Night in the i 
service of remembering, it's worth pausing for a moment to wonder at the fact that we even have memories. That was the focus of psychology researcher Endel Tolving. In the 1960s, psychologists thought of memory as the brain's warehouse, like everything in one room in here somewhere. But Tolving noticed that we have different kinds of memory. We have semantic memory, which includes facts and information, like what year the church was founded. We have procedural memory, which is how to do things, like enter the sanctuary and sit in a chair and not on top of the piano or somewhere else, right? <laughs> and we have episodic memory, which is uh, something that hadn't been described yet. Episodic memory is our personal memories of past experiences, like the very first time you ever visited here. And those are qualitatively different. We can relive episodic memories in our minds, almost like time travel. They are unique to each person, and episodic memory is how we make sense of the world and of life, which is to say, it's a huge part of human consciousness. Through clever experiments, Tolving 
found evidence for his hypothesis that different parts of the brain were responsible for each. Later, positron emission tomography, or PET scans of brain waves, proved him right. Tolving had memories of his own that surely impacted his whole life. He was a teenager in Nazi-occupied Estonia during World War II, who became separated from his parents during the chaotic German retreat. He did not see them again for more than 20 years. Tolving died at the age of 96 last year. Well, I hope the subject of this next eulogy is something that no one here ever has to experience. But we want to celebrate the life of Dr. William Murphy, who is the inventor of the vinyl blood bag. Before Dr. Murphy uh, did his thing, he bef before he invented the blood bag in the early 1950s, blood was stored in glass bottles. And you can imagine what a challenge that was to emergency responders, especially military medics on a battlefield. Dr. Murphy worked close to the front lines during the, the, the Korean War, and while there was some resistance from military officers, the military nurses became the biggest advocates. And we know we never argue with nurses. <laughs> Dr. Williams was a constant inventor. He filed 17 patents for medical devices between 1952 and 1980. He did research into using stem cells to cure macular degeneration, and he helped create an advanced pacemaker. And it's not surprising that Dr. Williams accomplished so much. His father received a Nobel Prize for medical research, and his mother was the first woman to become a licensed dentist in Massachusetts. Dr. Williams was 100 years old when he passed last year. Mary Cleave loved airplanes. She started flying at age 14 and earned her pilot's license before her driver's license flying with a pillow behind her back so she could reach the pedals, and another on the seat so she could see over the instrument panel. <laughs> Cleve wanted to be a flight attendant, but at five foot one and a half, the airlines, <laughs> the airlines rejected her as an inch and a half too short. <laughs> so she went on to earn a PhD in environmental engineering. While working as a sanitary engineer in a Utah sewage plant, Dr. Cleave applied to a NASA program seeking engineers to serve as astronauts on the as yet unheard of space shuttle. She was an inch and a half taller than the minimum height for an astronaut, <laughs> and she was accepted into astronaut training in 1980. Cleave flew aboard the space shuttle Atlantis in 1985, where along with her scientific duties, she handled the glamorous task of fixing the shuttle's malfunctioning toilet, earning the title of first space plumber. <laughs> she flew again in 1989, during which she deployed the Magellan spacecraft to map the surface of Venus. Unnerved by the dramatic destruction of the Amazon rainforest that she witnessed during her shuttle flights, Dr. Cleave moved from the astronaut program to become the first woman to lead NASA's science directorate, managing projects that increased our understanding of climate change, oceanography, and atmospheric science. In her retirement, Dr. Cleave continued to encourage girls of all heights to pursue science and engineering. <laughs> she passed last November, and tomorrow will be her 77th birthday. See, that's just evidence that too short is an unscientific social construct. <laughs> When M.S. Swaminathan was a young child in southern India, his father told him, 
The impossible exists mainly in our minds, but given the requisite will and effort, great tasks can be accomplished. This stuck with him. And although he grew up in a population boom in India during that time, and many doomsday books predicted that India was headed for mass starvation, Swaminathan did not believe it. He was a plant geneticist in the 1960s when he heard about new, sturdier wheat varieties being developed in Mexico. He initiated a collaboration, crossbred those strains with others to develop a wheat tailored to India's tastes, and then persuaded the government to give 18,000 tons of the new seeds a try. The resulting harvest was three times bigger than expected. Four years later, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for developing seeds that staved off mass starvation and fed the world. He also promoted farming practices that conserved water, were genetically diverse, used less energy, and were affordable for small farmers, all now recognized as important strategies for climate change. What goes in must come out, though. And in 1950s India, most people did not have toilets. Instead, the lowest class people made their living by cleaning other people's waste and were considered untouchable and cast out because of it. Bindeshwar Pathak wasn't one of them, though. In fact, he was from the upper class, but he got a taste of it as a child when he accidentally touched the garment of a quote-unquote untouchable woman. His family recoiled, a priest was consulted, and he was made to drink a mixture that included cow urine and cow dung in order to be purified. <laughs> Pathak made it his mission to address the sanitation problem as well as the oppression of the lowest class. In 1969, he designed a cheap, eco-friendly, poor flush toilet that used little water and created usable fertilizer for crops. In 1970, he founded an organization that installed nearly 1.3 million private toilets and over 10,000 public toilets, initiating a revolution in Indian sanitation. He was known to his family's horror as the toilet man but also as a national hero. Charles Feeney made billions of dollars and gave almost all of it away. <clears throat> he got rich when he and a college chum got the idea in 1960 to sell duty-free items like watches and perfume and liquor and cigarettes to, to the US soldiers who were passing through Mediterranean ports on their way back to the States. It was a time when international air travel was steadily growing because jets were replacing the propeller airplanes that had been there before. And his company, Duty Free Shoppers, grew along with the travel industry and quickly became a worldwide enterprise. It was important to Feeney that all his charitable, charitable giving was done anonymously. So when Feeney began giving his money away, he created an entity called the Atlantic Foundation and he incorporated it in Bermuda, which has very lax registration laws, so that no one would have know his connection to the donations. He said, it's much more fun to give while you're alive than to give when you're dead. <laughs> and he often quoted the proverb, there are no pockets in a shroud. Feeney gave to a wide variety of organizations, public health facilities in Vietnam, humanitarian efforts in Haiti, clinics for HIV in South Africa, and nearly a billion dollars to his alma mater and mine, Cornell University. Beginning in the 1980s, though, he had begun, already begun to trim his lifestyle. He sold his limousine, he started taking subways and cabs, 
He flew coach until his later years when his knee problems were so intense that he needed first class to fly without pain. And at the time of his death, he lived in a two-bedroom rented apartment in California. This is after he gave away more than $8 billion. He didn't mind the simplicity. He liked to say, you can only wear one pair of pants at a time. liked you best. Despite his slightly dopey on-air persona, Tommy Smothers was the political driver behind the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. In 1968, the Smothers Brothers invited singer-activist Harry Belafonte, who we also lost this year, to sing the Caribbean song Don't Stop the Carnival. But they put it against a backdrop of video clips from the Democratic National Convention of 1968, where protesters were attacked by the Chicago police. The American Carnival. CBS banned the clip. This is Don't Stop the Carnival. And there's a sing-along part. There's a call and response in the chorus, so jump in. You'll, you'll pick it up in the first chorus. One, two, one, two, three, four. <laughs> Have to talk to the governor today concerning the carnival parade. Have to talk to the governor today concerning the carnival parade. In Trinidad, people running wild. Governor said, No carnival, a big riot, police, something. A picket sign, and the people start to sing, Lord, don't stop the carnival. Lord, don't stop the carnival. The governor, we want action. I speak before the young generation. Lord, don't stop the carnival. Lord, don't stop the carnival. The carnival is American Bacchanal. Lord, don't stop the carnival. I'll have no fear if you come up the new year. Lord, don't stop the carnival. Friends, it's a big to history. Carnival time is a big necessity. I tell you, friends, it's a big calamity. Carnival time is a big necessity. I'm a pet can't sing the songs they sing about carnival and all the joy it brings. Oh Lord, I've no to say. Carnival time back in USA. Lord, don't stop the of our next eulogy was probably too famous for our usual standard for this service, but we wanted to include him because of his connection to Unitarian Universalism. Daniel Ellsberg graduated from Harvard, summa cum laude, of a degree in economics. After a stint in the Marine Corps, he began alternating work working between the Department of Defense and the RAND Corporation. His work took him to Vietnam for two years, 
And when he returned, he contributed to a top secret analysis on the conduct of the Vietnam War. This was a 47 volume analysis that would become known as the Pentagon Papers. These papers showed that the government knew that the war could most likely not be won. It also showed that the Johnson administration had lied not just to the public, but to Congress. Over the course of the 60s, Ellsberg became more and more disgusted with the war and was convinced that it was unjust. He leaked the papers in 1971, and the New York Times published portions of them, but not all. After 35 other book publishers refused to publish the papers, the publishing arm of the Unitarian Universalist Association agreed to publish the complete papers, all 7,000 pages of them. And they did so in October of 1971. Now, the, the war was still going on at this time. And this is after even President Richard Nixon called the head of Beacon Press saying that, hey, I, I sure wouldn't want the press to get in trouble by publishing these papers. Very subtle, right? Anyways, Ellsberg was harassed by the government for his courage, but he continued to be an advocate for peace and for government transparency until he passed away last year at 92. Carol Robles Roman was one of those people that make you say, I don't know how she did it all. And a lot of it was behind the scenes, but it made a huge impact. The third of six children in a Puerto Rican New York family, Robles Roman went to law school and worked for the rights of women, immigrants, ethnic and racial minorities, and improved New York City's accessibility for disabled people. She was a lawyer for the Bloomberg administration, a deputy mayor, chief executive of the, of the Women's Legal Defense Fund and of the Equal Rights Amendment slash Fund for Women's Equality, and she served on the board of one university and as dean of faculty at another. She established family justice centers for victims of domestic and gender-based violence. Another of Robles Roman's missions was to root out bias in the legal system. So she worked to diversify the pool of candidates from which the mayor appointed judges for family, civil, and criminal courts. Talk about behind the scenes. And it was she who prepped Michael Bloomberg when he testified on behalf of Sonia Sotomayor's appointment to the US Supreme Court. These are just a few of the things she did, basically as a city employee, that did not make her very famous, but did make a very big difference. And she was just 60 years old when she died last year from cancer. Natalie Zeman Davis, a Jewish woman from Detroit, was a scholar, teacher, mentor, politi political, excuse me, political activist, and one of the most creative and influential historians of her generation. Davis was especially interested in stories about borders and colonialism, and she centered her work on the lives and voices of people subjected to domination, peasants, women, apprentices, religious minorities, the poor, the enslaved. She is perhaps best known for her book, The Return of Martin Gare, written after she served as a technical consultant to, and extra in, the 1982 French film about Gare starring Gerard Depardieu. In 1952, the federal government seized her passport and that of her husband, mathematician and activist Chandler Davis, for their radical political activities and their association with the Communist Party USA. After Chandler served six months in prison for refusing to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, 
the family emigrated to Canada, where Davis taught the first women's history course ever offered by a Canadian university and spearheaded a campaign to open a campus daycare center. Upon returning to the US after the McCarthy era, she helped found the first women's studies programs at UC Berkeley and at Princeton, and famously rode her bicycle to the police station to bail out her students arrested for demanding divestment from South Africa. She received a dizzying array of honors and awards throughout her life, including a National Humanities Medal from President Barack Obama, coming full circle from her passport seizure so many years earlier. She passed last fall at 94, still in the middle of writing another book. Ada Deer was a member of the Menominee Indian tribe of Wisconsin. Born in 1935, she went to University of Wisconsin at Madison and then got a master's in social work from Columbia University. Now from the 40s to the mid 60s, the federal government was actively trying to terminate the federal standings of tribes in an attempt to force native folks to assimilate. So under the 1954 Mononymie Termination Act, the government severed their relationship with the tribe. This caused funding for schools and hospitals to dry up, and the county where the tribe lived quickly became the poorest county in the state of Wisconsin. After, the tri after termination, the tribe was governed by a corporate body called Mononymie Enterprises. Deer was one of the leaders of an organization that eventually, eventually took over Mononymy Enterprises, then worked to reverse the termination, which happened in 1973. She became the first woman to lead the tribe, serving as chair from 1974 to 1976. In 1992, she ran for Congress and received the Democratic nomination. And at that, she said to the press, I've been waiting a long time to say this, me nominee. <laughs> Get it? Nominee, the nominee? Anyway. In 1993, President Bill Clinton appointed Deere Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs at the Department of the Interior. She was the first woman to hold that position. And it foreshadowed the day that would come almost 30 years later when New Mexico's own Deb Holland would become the first Native American to become a cabinet secretary of any kind when she became Secretary of the Interior. Deere passed last year at the age of 88. Joanne Meyer was born in 1925 in the town of Marion, Kansas, population 1,900, and that is where she stayed. She worked in the local grocery store, the hospital, and an alfalfa mill before joining the staff for the town newspaper, the Marion County Record. There she spent nearly 60 years as a reporter, a columnist, an associate publisher, and an editor. In 1998, when the paper's owners decided to sell it, Joanne and her husband bought it to keep the corporate chains from getting their hands on it. Later, her journalist son took over, and Meyer mostly retired, though even in her 90s, she wrote occasional columns. The paper had a reputation for hard-hitting reporting about local officials, including an article questioning the troubling circumstances under which the chief of police had left his last job. In August of last year, the police raided the newspaper's office, as well as Joanne Myers home. They took computers, servers, and cell phones. Myers, who was 98 years old, couldn't sleep that night, and she was too traumatized to eat breakfast the next day. Her son says she kept repeating, where are all the good people to put a stop to this? She died in mid-sentence that afternoon. 
Though the paper was small, the raid of a news organization is incredibly rare in the US, so it caught the attention of news outlets nationwide, sparking conversations about the free press. The paper's subscribership jumped by 50%. This year, it won the William Allen White National Award for Excellence in Journalism. Independent, free press is one of the cornerstones of democracy, and Joanne Meyer was one of the cornerstones of that cornerstone. Judy Human was an international disability rights activist, widely regarded as the mother of the disability rights movement. Paralyzed by polio as a toddler, Human, the child of German Jewish immigrants, dedicated the rest of her life to fighting for the inherent dignity of people with disabilities. You might recognize her story from the Oscar-nominated documentary Crip Camp, which she helped direct. She brought and won the first ever federal disability discrimination case in 1970, challenging the New York Board of Education's refusal to certify her as a teacher because of her paralysis. In 1977, Human led the famous 504 sit-in, a 27-day occupation of the San Francisco Health Education and Welfare Offices, which forced the Carter administration to implement Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. One fellow protester said of her, we were more scared of disappointing Judy Human than of the FBI or the police. <laughs> her courage and fierce advocacy resulted in the passage of other major disability rights legislation, including the IDEA and the ADA, landmark laws that increased access to education, work, housing, and more. Between 2000 and 2015, 181 countries passed disability civil rights laws modeled on the ADA. Human helped make this happen, working for disability rights in the Carter, I'm sorry, the Clinton and Obama administrations as an advisor to the World Bank and State Department and as a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation. Human did not become complacent behind a desk. However, her most recent arrest was in 2017, protesting attempts to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Some people say that what I did changed the world, she said, but really, I simply refused to accept what I was told about who I could be, and I was willing to make a fuss about it. She passed last March at age 75. If you haven't seen the documentary Crip Camp yet, watch it tonight, it's streaming. So we've had a rather raucous service so far, music and great stories. Let's take a step back for a moment of reflection and meditation. So find your comfortable seat. <sighs> Feel about where your hands are resting, where your feet might be resting. Maybe lengthen your spine if that suits your body today. If it doesn't, that's great. Let's take a deep breath together and exhale out. And let's be quiet together. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for Thank you for love. 
Let's consider the things that we're carrying today. Maybe they're concerns for people or places that are so heavy that they prevent us from being fully present for this service. At the sound of the chime, let's speak these into our sanctuary so that we may carry them together. all these, we add these intentions. We grieve for Eric Sorensen, who passed away on January 30th. May his wife Enid and stepchildren 
Keith and Bonnie Lieberman know that they are carried in our hearts. And we mourn the passing of Jane Baldwin, who played piano in the sanctuary and other places for 10 years for us. May light perpetual shine upon her. And we lift up my friend, Craig Clickinger, who is in the ICU in Maryland. May he find peace and healing, and may his family know comfort. All these we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal known by many names. I want to pray today through a poem by the poet Joy Harjo. It's called Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know that there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments steadily growing. And in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River. Circled in the blue sky and wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born, and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. Blessed be, and peace be with you. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to
South African ballet dancer Johar Mosaval was born the eldest of 10 children in a Cape Malay family in apartheid-era Cape Towns, District 6. In spite of his Muslim family's fierce disapproval, he studied ballet under South African prima donna, prima ballerina Dulcie Howes, who broke apartheid law by allowing him into her classes. He subsequently became the first dancer of color to join Britain's Royal Ballet, where he also became the first principal of color six years later. He danced with the Royal Ballet around the world for 25 years, except when the company toured South Africa, as authorities had warned him that he would be banned if he came on stage. In 1975, Mosaval returned from the Royal, retired from the Royal Ballet and returned home, where he became the first black dancer to perform at the Nico Milan Opera House in Cape Town. Although his performance was important publicity for the South African government as it faced growing condemnation for its apartheid policies, his contract still stated that he was not allowed to touch the white dancers with his bare hands. Musaval also opened a ballet school which the South African government immediately shut down because he taught multiracial classes and refused to operate under apartheid rules. After earning countless recognitions in his decades abroad, Mosaval's achievements were finally recognized at home in South Africa when he was awarded the Order of Ikimanga in 2019 and given an honorary doctorate by the University of Cape Town in 2020. He passed last August at age 95. When Simone Seguin was 17, just 17, she joined the French resistance. It was 1942 and the Germans occupied France her first act of resistance was stealing a bicycle from a German patrol, but that was after she slashed the tires on all the other bikes so no one could follow her. <laughs> she then used that bike to deliver messages for the resistance because she could pass as a young woman. She was taught how to use a machine gun when she joined, and she started out doing small jobs and then moved on to bigger things, like blowing up a train. She was profiled during the war by Life magazine when a reporter found her with her submachine gun, leading a group of 25 German soldiers that she had helped capture. Simone began a relationship with her lieutenant, who was 20 years older. They never married, but she had six children with him, and they separated in the 1950s. Speaking to students at a high school in her hometown of Schart in 2014, Ms. Seguin, then 89, was asked if she had ever killed someone. She replied, on July 14, 1944, I took part in an ambush with two comrades. Two German soldiers went by on a bike, and the three of us fired at the same time. So I don't know who exactly killed them. You shouldn't have to kill someone like that. It's true, the Germans were our enemies, it was the war, but I don't draw any pride from it. She was 97 when she passed last February. It was 1944, and Bertie Bowman was just 13 years old when one of South Carolina's U.S. Senators made a campaign stop at a local store where Bertie just happened to be. When Bertie overheard the Senator tell the crowd that any of them were welcome to visit him if they ever came to Washington, D.C., Bertie ran up to make sure. If I come to Washington, D.C., can I come see you? Yes, the Senator replied. Bertie didn't want to stay in South Carolina and become a sharecropper like his parents. 
So he hopped on a train with a few dollars and without his parents' permission. He meant to look up a cousin when he got to Washington, D.C., but he lost the cousin's address. After sleeping for two nights in the train station, which must have been terrifying, he found his way to the senator's office. To his surprise, the senator gave him a custodial job making $2 a week. From there, Bertie met people who helped him work his way up to shining shoes and then working in the barber shop and so on until he eventually joined the Foreign Relations Committee. He formed long-term bonds with Democrats and Republicans alike. He retired 56 years after he arrived, making him the longest serving black staff member in congressional history. He died last year at age 92. From there, he went to heaven where it is reported that his parents are still mad at him. <laughs> Rightfully so. Sandra Flemister became the first black woman to serve in the United States Secret Service in 1974. Although she was hailed as a trailblazer at her swearing-in and was proud of her work protecting first daughters Susan Ford and Amy Carter, she endured relentless racial and sexual harassment from her fellow agents. Realizing that she would never be allowed to advance, Flemister left the Secret Service in 1978, taking a pay cut to join the Foreign Service. During more than three decades with the State Department, she served with distinction on postings around the world, including Islamabad, Buenos Aires, Madrid, London, Seoul, and Washington, D.C. In 2000, although she was not a plaintiff, Flemister wrote an affidavit in support of a class action racial discrimination lawsuit filed against the Secret Service by more than 100 black agents. The retention rate among African-American women in the Secret Service was so low that as of 2001, not a single black female agent had remained in the service long enough to reach retirement. In 2017, the Secret Service agreed to a $24 million settlement for doing nothing wrong. Sadly, several years earlier, at age 59, Flemister was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and forced to retire. By the time of the Secret Service settlement, she was unable to understand or even remember the lawsuit. She died last year at 71. Greta Anderson was an amazing swimmer. Born in Copenhagen, Denmark, she endured the occupation of her country by the Nazis. After the Germans surrendered in 1945, her life returned to normal and she learned to swim. She eventually became a renowned marathon swimmer, doing things that most male swimmers could only dream of. She was the first person to swim the Santa Catalina Channel in California, back and forth in one go, swimming for 27 hours nonstop. In 1962, she swam 50 miles from Chicago to Kenosha, Wisconsin. If you know how cold the Great Lakes are, you realize what a feat this is. That took her 31 hours. She broke 18 world marathon swimming records over the course of her career. But she wasn't always dominant. At the 1947 Olympics in London, she won a gold in the 100 meter, and she also won a silver in the freestyle relay. But before she could complete, compete in the 400 meter freestyle, which was her best event, and she was already the world leader in that, she realized that when the day of the race come, came, it would coincide with her menstrual cycle. Well, the team doctor suggested that she get a, an injection to delay it. 
Well, Greta went along with that. She got the shot. But when she jumped in the water to race, her legs became paralyzed and she blacked out. She had to be rescued by a Hungarian water pole player who jumped in and pulled her out of the pool. Initially, she was devastated, but after a while, she said, so life goes on, find something else and get happy. Whoever has a perfect life from beginning to end. Greta Anderson was 92 when she passed. Bill Pinckney had done many things. He had been a Navy sailor, an X-ray technician, an elevator mechanic, conga player, makeup artist, executive at Revlon, father, limbo dancer, and city employee. But as he approached middle age, there was still one thing he wanted to do. So he did some fundraising, and at age 54, he set out on a 47-foot boat named Commitment to sail around the entire globe alone. It took a little over two years to cover the 32,000 miles, during which he bypassed the Panama Canal and instead went around Cape Horn, the southern tip of South America. Only one other person had ever done that solo, and there's a reason for that. The Atlantic and Pacific Oceans meet there in dangerous, churning waters, whipped by winds called Willowas. It is the Mount Everest of sailing. When Pinckney reached the other side of it, he had been awake at the helm for 48 hours, but he still took a moment to make a celebration video for the 30,000 children back in Chicago and Boston who were following his journey as part of an educational project Pinckney had designed before he set sail. One of Pinckney's sails was red, green, and yellow, the colors of African-American pride. He was the second person to complete this feat and the first black person to do so. After he got back from that death-defying journey, he lived to the age of 92. Producer Norman Lear broke ground with his 1970s sitcom, All in the Family, where a working-class family in Queens argued over the Vietnam War, racism, anti-Semitism, homosexuality, religion, women's liberation, abortion, you name it, they brought it. The opening credits of the show featured lovable bigot Archie and dingbat Edith Bunker at the piano singing a song about the good old days. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played Songs that made the hit parade Guys like me, we had it made were the days. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. GR all the sound ran great. Those were the days. And you knew when you were then. Girls were girls and men were men. Mr. We could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. People seem to be content. Fifty dollars paid the rent. And freaks were in a circus tent. Those were the A 
And now for the section we like to call rapid fire. From the computer files, this year we said goodbye to Adobe founder John Warnock, the inventor of the PDF. We very much hope that the save to cloud feature worked correctly for him. <laughs> I hope so. And Alice K. Lattice was a psychologist whose best-selling book explored and made well-known the G-Spot. <laughs> she lived in Santa Fe, by the way. If you read Mad Magazine as a kid, you no doubt remember the fold-in cartoon on the last page? That was the brainchild of cartoonist Al Jaffe, who worked for Mad Magazine from 1964 to 2013. And if you read that magazine, maybe you also tormented your family with his snappy answers to stupid questions. Shout out to candy magnet Bob Bourne, who reduced peep production time from 27 hours per batch to less than six minutes, making it possible to produce two billion peeps each year, enough to circle the globe two and a half times. <laughs> I wonder if that's like through the Panama Canal or <laughs> around Cape Horn. And Joseph Pedat also died this year. He was the entrepreneurial advertising executive who turned the Chia Pet and the Clapper light switch into retail sensations with jingles like Ch -ch -ch Chia and Clap On, <laughs> Clap Off, <laughs> Clap On, <laughs> that have echoed in our ears for generations. And those are our eulogies for 2023. What a year, what a bunch of lives well lived. Today we've heard about a number of people whose gifts touched many others. They gave of themselves, their time, their talents, their treasure, reinvesting in the world again and again to leave things better than they had been. We also have the privilege of investing in a better world by supporting the work of this congregation. This includes our Change for the Future partner, Casa Q, which provides safe housing for LGBTQ youth and allies through housing, services, and advocacy. As we offer our financial support, let us also offer gratitude for the ability to contribute. May this act of giving be a joyful expression of our hope for a world where courage, justice and compassion shape our future together. Canadian indigenous musician Robbie Robertson received a posthumous Academy Award nomination for scoring Killers of the Flower Moon. He and Martin Scorsese had been friends since Scorsese made the movie the Last Waltz, which was about the band's final concert. This song, The Wait, was intended to convey the kind of surreal imagery and human connections seen in films by Luis Buñuel. It was set in the set town of Nazareth, which Robertson looked in the hole of his Martin guitar and saw that it was made in Nazareth and that inspired him to write this song about it.
such a cool band. <laughs> Thank you all so much for your generosity. Thank you on behalf of the congregation and on behalf of Casa Q. And thank you ushers for volunteering today. I want to share another thank you for everybody who helped last week with our Close the Gap effort. We did have our annual meeting at 2 that afternoon. We passed a budget that instead of having the original $117,000 deficit, had just a $27,000 deficit. We can make that work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Made a big difference. All right. We've got a couple of invitations. We have a couple of things happening in the social hall today. First is the Valentine's Day Arts and Crafts Sale. You can buy from our beloved community for your beloveds for Valentine's Day. Um, you'll also have a chance to stop by the Earthweb table and find out what's going on during the New Mexico legislative session. We'll be able to tell you what bills are up of interest, what needs support, how to contact legislators, and other things that we can do. And be sure to check your printed program for information about a couple of other things that are also happening. I want to extend a special welcome to the 13 people who signed our membership book this morning, our new members. 
We're so glad you did. Would you um, rise or raise your hand if you're able while I say your name? KJ? Hello, Joshua. <laughs> Joshua, Jane, Deidre, Laura, Anna. <laughs> Anna, Mary, Brisa, Nancy, and Sandra, and Brian. <laughs> Woohoo! Welcome, welcome again. We're so glad you're here. I invite everyone to rise as you are able and greet each other, especially these new members, with a gesture of peace. Good morning, peace. And while you're there, just reach down and grab that turquoise hymnal, turn to number 1074. This is another West song in honor of Harry Belafonte, Turn the World Around. May the memories of our ancestors both teach us and comfort us. Go in peace and practice radical love.
already said Gotta go. Thanks for sticking around all this time. Kept you late after school. But you can go now. <laughs> That's right. Now I understand why he did it. That was great. Nice job, everybody. Yay. I'm going to tell Lara to post the second service if they.